Hello and welcome to Found in Translation, a weekly-ish exploration of one fellow's translation of the Christian scriptures, one chapter at a time. I'm Brandon Rhodes, and across the internet for me is the translator himself, Brandon Johnson. Hi, Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. How's it going? Oh, uh, you know, the dude abides. Got to have a good weekend out in the woods, uh, taking her easy for uh, all the sinners. So take comfort okay. in that, man. Yeah, yeah. I will. I will. <laughs> how about you? I'm mildly confused about half the words you just said. Uh, it, was, but... it was an extended reference <laughs> to a very good movie. Yeah, I actually still haven't watched it. I know what movie, <gasps> but yeah. We need to remedy I'm at a loss for words. Like that part yeah. of my brain just shut off. The front uh-huh. left is gone. I can't believe that. No? Okay. We're going to change yeah. that. All right. Yeah. Big Lebowski weekend coming up. Mm-hmm. Paul David and I are going to need to do that soon. So maybe we'll all just yeah. meet up at his place and watch it on the projector. Anyhow, awesome. how are you? <laughs> great. Doing great. I'm uh, nearing the end of having two two jobs and homeschooling my kids and um, so they're back in school full-time which is great but also a little scary uh but mostly great Mm -hmm. um and then my agency job i am going from half time down to five hours a week um whoa which is feeling good feeling like there's gonna be more balance in my life so that's good to hear yeah, that's coming up just like a, less than a week and a half now. So, Excellent. Well, this week we are talking about Matthew chapters. Well, we're going to try 14 and 15. I'm going to start with 14, so that may be all you hear this episode. <laughs> but I think we can do 14 and 15. We'll see. So listeners, if you have not had a chance to read the translation, please do so. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. Swipe left or right, probably, in your podcast player to find those. You know that by now. You're quite a few episodes into this. And you know what comes next. Check the footnotes. So go ahead. Give it a read. We'll be here. Welcome back. So let's get started on verse four of chapter 14 with footnote B. There's this word that I'm used to in conventional translations, unlawful. Mm-hmm. Uh, other, other places, it's uh, the, I mean, a variant of it would be the law as this stand in for the first five books of uh, the Jewish scriptures, the Torah. Right. And that, that's literally what that word means. Yeah. Uh, that's how it should be interpreted here. Yes. <laughs> Good, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that shows up in all, all across the uh, new Testament, but you've found that to be unsatisfactory. I can yeah. relate. <laughs> what, what made that worth a change? So, so a lot of times in the new Testament in the Greek, it's namas to refer to law or Pentateuch or Torah mm-hmm. is probably the most actually faithful to the tradition. Of, you know, um, here is actually not that it's existen, which means something along the lines of it's lawful or it's permitted. Um, 
it's it's acceptable. It's okay. Um, it's not just conjugating the same word as Torah. It's yeah, kind of it's a different. A, thing. It's a different word. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but then it has the word uk, which is essentially not. So it is not permitted mm-hmm. uh, or or lawful here. But I think there is definitely a sense of it being about Torah, the first five books of mm-hmm. of, of Hebrew scripture. Um, or at least that's where you can find God's instruction that it's contradicting. Um, so that that's why I went ahead and did Torah here. And that, and that comes back to the conversation that we've had several times by now about trying to erase the eraser of, of the Jewish connection, the Hebrew origins of all this stuff. Um, trying to undo the anti-Semitism. So really leaning heavily on the fact that this is Hebrew stuff. Mm-hmm. This is Jewish stuff. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus read Hebrew. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Like Jesus name was Joshua, even though I'm not translating it that way. So this is another nod to that. And I think it's significant. And you can even, I, I put in the footnote specifically, which two verses in Torah uh, would be applicable here for why it's against it yeah um yeah leviticus 18 16 and 20 21 which read uh you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife it is your brother's nakedness which gets into a little bit of uh either some really interesting we versus i thinking (laughs) community (laughs) collective thinking or some patriarchy and misogyny depending on which way you want to emphasize it there sure or leviticus 20 21 if a man takes his brother brother's wife is impurity he has uncovered his brother's nakedness same issues at play there and they shall be childless um and those are the things that herod would be uh in violation of in the torah right yeah it also comes to mind that these can't be absolute because they're actually explicitly um directed to marry your brother's wife if your brother has died which actually had it in this context but not just because like ooh, she's interesting i want a piece of that more like there's a sense of the hebrew scripture vision of what life after death was about Hmm. didn't have to do with conscious existence in another realm another dimension of existence another it was had to do with continuing through your descendants so if someone died without children then the kinsman redeemer which is law which is what it's referred to as came into play where a brother would have marry his brother's widow have children with them the children would be considered descendants of the brother not the biological father and carry on the lineage, essentially carry on their life after death for them, hmm. Um, hmm. which gets connected with things of with connected with Jubilee and how oh. land and resource divisions were allotted based on family lines. And um, it's connected with a lot of different stuff, but it's, all this is kind of like in view here mm-hmm. in interesting ways that if you're Jewish, and versed in scripture, like Jesus and the disciples and all the read, original readers would have been, would have just yeah. been assumed you understood. You know, that 
getting rid of the word uh, unlawful or elsewhere, I would assume, like you're well into translating some of the Pauline letters. Uh, are you making mm-hmm. a similar translation decision there? Uh, I probably would. You know, I don't think I've gotten to that. Oh, yeah, you're doing Galatians. I've done Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and that just started Galatians. Okay, there will be there. opportunities oh, for, yeah, in Galatians, yeah. but I haven't gotten to them yet. Yeah. Yeah, the the whole language of the law, particularly as it is developed in Paul, he's still meaning the Torah. Like he's speaking of it as sort of this meta personal, like or semi-personal presence or force that um is part of the the believing community in the same way that maybe we would say empire or America or Rome or capitalism is like, it's just part of like what forms you. It's a, it's a massive part. Yeah. If you are in the realm of social work or psychology or Mm -hmm. a number of other disciplines, sociology talking about meta systems. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And he's, he's not talking about an abstraction of law, like the, the, the eternal moral code of God. And if you break the capital L law, these are the consequences. Like this is the big Mm -hmm. penal punitive narrative that we've brought up again and again as being just horse shit. Right. That comes much more from Roman legal systems than it does from scriptural legal yes. pers- law perspectives. Great, great point. Yeah. So it it's just so inclines us to what we already, whatever our culture of origin or present moment is, whatever it taught us about law keeping and law breaking. If you just use this kind of unlawful, lawful language, we're primed to already hear it all through that lens. Mm-hmm. So and it's also just not what Paul or Jesus or the gospel writers are even getting at. They're, they're all yeah. like getting at this one particular book that was called the law to those people, but I by mean, emphasis- sort of not in English. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, yeah. And so not with the lang- baggage that the word law has in English. Yeah. Uh, they called it Moses or the book of Moses, the books of Moses by emphasizing this as, no, he's talking about Torah. Like that's that's what he's talking about, which did have a yeah, that sort of metapersonal energy uh, mm-hmm. among the the believing community. So I think this is one of those seemingly small but actually pretty massive fulcrum points in your translation project that gets mm-hmm. us out of this punitive penal horseshit. <laughs> And towards a whatever it is that, in this case, Matthew is trying to to teach and get at and tell tell us about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's part of all of the small, multiple decisions that I've made that are about trying to undo the tradition of English tradition translations of that have a really judgmental flair to them. And that I, that I don't think is native to the scripture. I think it has to do with the particular 
traditions and history of English translation specifically that was inheriting things from centuries of imperialist Christian history yeah, yeah, before yeah. that. So. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, moving along, uh, let's jump a whopping 15. You know, I wanted to jump 15 verses to verse 19 with footnote mm-hmm. H. So this is where Jesus is like breaking the bread and um, giving praise to about, you know, the, the first story of the feeding of uh-huh. a whole bunch of people. We're yeah, actually not going to we're not going to hit on that right now. Uh, yeah. Let's save that because you you pointed out that there, there's a connection. The operative word I wanted to hone in on in that story uh, spoke praise instead of gave thanks does actually have a really important parallel at the end of 15. So we're going to dog you mm-hmm. that next thing. Uh, verse 27. Footnote J. Yeah. All, all the Lord's homies are out on uh, a boat, his closest ones anyway. And mm-hmm. they're Is kind Jesus of freaking your homeboy, out. Brandon? Oh, okay. I, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Do you remember when that was everywhere? I, you know what? I'm going to have to take this to my counselor now. Uh, I feel like I blocked <laughs> it all out so effectively. Oh, it's all coming back. There's a tooth and nail records there. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts on yeah. every, every other Christian. Yeah. Christian. Yeah. You know, that was yeah. on the rack right next to the Lord's gym. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to listen to a podcast called the rise and fall of the Lord's gym. Oh, Christianity gosh. today, get on it. That's uh, right. I think they may already have. Um, yeah. Oh, 2005 is calling. They want their shirts back. Yeah. I, we can burn them. Yeah. Uh, you know, while we're meandering, I realized we didn't say uh, if we're having grown-up beverages. Oh, very important. Thank you yeah. for coming back to yeah. it. Yeah, uh, dear uh, listeners, I'm sorry. We apologize. Brandon, what are you having? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, what else would I be having, Brandon? That's a Manhattan. Excellent. Wow, you're finishing a Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, well, getting close. <laughs> I mean, though you waited so long to ask I did. about it. So, yeah, what about you? You're just stress drinking through there. Uh, I'm also having a Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we should change drinks, like when we get to like Ephesians or something. Nah. I mean, there was a couple of chapter three or something episode. We were both drinking martinis. We changed it up every once in a while. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay, so getting back to it. Yeah, Jesus and his uh, brothers are uh, his homies. His are brothers? Oh, well, yeah, his, not his brothers' his brothers, but his other brothers. Yes, brothers his from, brothers from another mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. This is declining quickly. Yeah. Uh, we can save this, uh, or the Lord can. Uh, I am me, he says to them. He So they're all freaking out about a storm. They realize he's not in the boat, and he comes ice skating out to them and uh, says Jesus spoke to them right away. He said, take courage. I am me. Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. That is weird. It is. <laughs> it's really weird. weird. Man. Yeah. Yeah. NET New English translation does. It is I. Uh-huh. 
Um, if I were trying to be like much more readable here, which was one of the considerations that I thought about, it would have been like, it's me would mm-hmm. have been like how I would have said it, you know, don't worry. It's me. But there's something really larger, significant happening here. The, the Greek is ego me, which literally just means I am. I've heard that somewhere before. Uh-huh. Gen- uh, Exodus 3 and John something or other. Like 8. Yeah. Yeah, is it? yeah it's, it's the divine introduction. Like Moses says, well, who the hell sent me? Mm-hmm. And the burning bush is like, oh, I am. Oy vey, uh, I am. Yeah, I will be it, what I will be-, be. It becomes God's name. Yeah. Uh, which I he's think trying Exodus- to dodge the, <laughs> the question, yeah. I think. And they're like, we're going to make way, that your name. The question dodger. I mean, Exodus 3 is the only place where it's in first person. I am. I am. Everywhere else, it's third person. The one who is. Oh, Yahweh, which is known as the name of God, but it's literally this like third person, the one who is, the one he is, it is. And so you get all these names of God, like Yireh, Mm -hmm. the one who provides, the one who heals, the one who saves. Yeah. Yeah. Shua. Creator liberates. Yeah. Joshua, Jesus, the one who saves. So do you think Jesus or Matthew was intentionally winking to us with this? It's hard for me to imagine a reality in which Matthew or Jesus did not (laughs) know that this, that was what they were saying. It's a bit on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I tried to at least translate it with a phrase that included the words I am in it. Um, The word me is an addition because just in English, it's really weird. Like just having the words I am there wouldn't really make sense. And so I really kind of struggled with this for a little while. Like, what do I do here? Like I'm trying to like just have Jesus answer Peter's question in a way that's like logical in some sort of way that connects it's an answer to the question or i I don't know if it's if you call a shrieking and fear question but Mm. uh but you know responding to peter and what he needed but also trying to be faithful to the fact that this is jesus saying i am in a way that isn't explicitly but is hard to ignore the fact that he's essentially using god's name for himself there and he's enacting a a very classic image of the divine in Jewish uh, imagination mm-hmm. of you know the primordial waters of creation in yeah. the very beginning opening hymns. Yeah, like the spirit is brooding over the deep like a bird with uh, bright wings, you know. Um, and here he is walking over the water. Uh, the people were the Jewish people were liberated through the water of the Sea of Reeds, and here they are threatened again by waters. Twelve people, hmm, 
about to drown uh, into the waters. And instead of parting them, he sustains them over it. Yeah, it's it's one of the most, uh, I, to me, like semiotically heavy handed notions of Jesus is enacting the presence of their God in mm-hmm. what he is doing. It's literally echoing it pretty gratuitously. It's like, oh, the the ah, the lion is Jesus. Uh, it's kind of yeah, yeah. There's a fairly inescapable connection with Yahweh, the one who is the creator of all creation, and Jesus right here. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the normal translations, oddly enough, like the evangelical world that I grew up in looked under every stone for some sort of proof texts like jesus is just going around like winking like i'm actually god um and that's really the point of most things jesus is doing is like i'm actually the second person of the trinity and it's like well i do that's the only thing you're caring about you're gonna miss all the things he's actually doing and the whole thing is going to come out with an entirely different meaning yeah well not even necessarily entirely different just because sometimes it does really hinge on this notion of like he has such a tight notion of divine agency him embodying divine agency that you you get a little like dizzy trying to he's doing something so novel um but yeah he's he's not actually going around winking that he's the second person of the trinity um because that wasn't a concept yet yeah, also wasn't the concept, but it's peculiar. Yeah, this is what I wanted to, to land on is I would expect evangelical translators to want to like surface these moments like this where he's saying something that seems pretty lucidly to be the one who brooded over the waters and identified through the burning bushes. I am that I am. I will be what I will be. Like he's kind of quoting that character. Mm-hmm. Why they wouldn't surface that here? Well, my eyebrows are one of my eyebrows is quite raised. Yes, yeah, and I don't know the answer to that. I imagine it's similar to my issue of I don't really know how. In oh, just you know, like you don't know how to say it. Like just practically speaking, I don't know how to make that work in English. Yeah, because it takes yeah. your footnotes still to say. Also, there's a clear wink here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, but I don't feel good about the Greek going to English coherently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple more things I would like to uh, touch on in chapter 14. You know, uh, verse 31, usually it's, uh, oh, you of little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. Why did you hesitate? Yeah, if you go real old school. Yeah, ye. Oh, ye, a little faith. And you're going with mistrustful. Mm-hmm. Anything that might be helpful for our listeners about that? Yeah. Yeah. This, so this shows up. This is not the first time it showed up. Um, it was in the Sermon on the Mount as well. So five chapters five, six, seven. But the word literally means like little trusters or little faith. Um, it's pissed off. So like someone who has faith or is faithful or has trust and oligos, little, it's like smashed together. Um, 
Oh, you look barely believers. Yeah, there's something about so that that pistos word, pistis being the concept, pistos being a person characterized by that concept. Trust, faithfulness, allegiance. Mm-hmm. Kind of all three of those ideas wrapped up in a like somewhat reciprocal way. And you know, one or one of those three kind of maybe being the predominant idea in a particular context, but I think all three of them present in all of them. Yeah. There's a sense of I trust you, so I respond in faithfulness. So you have my allegiance. Um or I'm faithful to you because I've given you my allegiance because I trust you, or you have my allegiance and therefore I'm faithful to you as I trust you. Like mm-hmm. one of them mm-hmm. has the primary enunciation, but all three are always present, I think. Mm. And here he's saying, whatever that is, there's not much of it showing up here. Just a little, like very <laughs> little. Yeah. Um, what's going on guys? Why are you so, why are you scared? Why is your faithfulness to follow my instructions? Why is your allegiance to me that's connected with your trust that I, that I can be trusted? Why is that not strong right now? Mm -hmm. What's going on? Why are the fears getting in the way? That's all really different than, why don't you have enough saving faith? Yeah. Or blind yeah. faith. Yeah. Every time we hear the word faith, those of us who grew up in broadly evangelicalism, but probably other uh, halls of the house of faith, we're all trained to hear that faith is, aha, he's talking about the thing that gets, that gets us in. Mm-hmm. Well, slow your roll there, brothers and sisters. It's mm-hmm. it's a little, it's actually more interesting than that. Okay, so let's move forward to into chapter fifteen, verse eleven. So he says, uh, "I'll start with verse 10. Then Jesus called the crowd's attention and said, "Listen and make the connection. What goes in someone's mouth doesn't make them unclean. Instead, what comes out of their mouth is what makes a person unclean." Now, that's a word I believe we've touched on, unclean, like the clean, unclean binary is something that Mm -hmm. is absolutely kind of part of the cultural imagination at the time, but also really complicated and easy to, it's the kind of thing that you really complicated. Yeah. You've really wanted to be careful about uh, Mm -hmm. how it's talked about here, Uh, but you, you kept it. Often you have found other words for it. Yeah, or not not for this word exactly, but for for most things, we're like, that's not a thing we say in any other context. Right. I've tried to find a way to say it otherwise. But for this word, other than making sure that I never use pure or impure, because the purity culture of the 90s and early 2000s, like, there's just too yeah. much there. But unclean... I don't know what else to do, Brandon. Like this is very specific to Torah regulations about specific rules around making sure things are 
I don't even know what, to, well, again, I don't know what other word to use other than clean and unclean. Um, sometimes it's like health, health related, like don't eat pork, presumably because it could make you sick shellfish for the same reason. Yeah. Um, a house with mold in it, in the walls, like the mold needs to be cut out. If that doesn't fix it, tear down the whole house. Like there are like health reasons. There's there's a book that you and I both read and, and talked about at one point um, called mm-hmm. Unclean by Richard um, Beck. Richard Beck, which was super interesting, super helpful, transformative. Yeah, he's a psychologist, I think. Psychiatrist, psychologist. Um, mm, he's a theologian. I think. Oh well, he's well, he's definitely a psychologist or psychiatrist and a theologian. Oh, great! Um, and the book is about discussed psychology as it intersects with teachings about uncleanness and purity in scripture and just in Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, very helpful. Yeah, I encourage everybody to give that one a very like. Why don't you Google that one? Look it up on Bookshop uh, and and buy a copy. It's a great book. And I think it would actually be pretty instructive. It's a good companion reading to this podcast in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah. And bonus, it's not super long. No, it is not. It is a concise, (laughs) dense little book. So I kept this partly because it's... It's not a word that we use in any other context, but I think it's also a concept that doesn't come up explicitly in other contexts. If you're going the, the Richard Beck route of like connecting it with discussed psychology, sure, that comes up constantly. Um, but there's a very particular Torah originating set of how to be that's ritually, religiously clean yeah. or religi- ritually religiously unclean that's in view here it feels like appropriate to keep the religious technical term when it's a religious technical issue well said this is a big one there is this well it's really a list in verse 19 so i'm just going to start in verse 16 i think it's helpful to read a little bit of context here You still don't understand? This is after a parable has been written. Jesus responded, Have you considered how everything that goes into the mouth proceeds to the belly and is expelled into a toilet? Uh, But what emerges from the mouth comes from the heart, and these make the person unclean. Since destructive rumination, murder, marital infidelity, sexual exploitation, theft, lying about another person, and contemptuous speech all come from the heart. These are what makes someone unclean. Eating without washing their hands doesn't make someone unclean. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, that list reads a little differently in like literally every other translation. Mm-hmm. But this, it reads so elegantly and like plausibly here. It doesn't feel like a lot of your translations do just kind of read with the flow and I miss it. I'm like, oh, wait. That just felt right. And other times, like the I am, I am me. <laughs> right. That's a little like, weird and awkward. Jesus, have yeah. you been day drinking? Um, and here, this all just like feels at home. And yet, mm-hmm. 
quite different from what I'm accustomed to. In so I'd ways. love to. Yeah. Yeah. So you very helpfully put these four in uh, our notes for this recording. Destructive rumination, sexual exploitation, lying about another person in contemptuous speech. Let's quickly mm-hmm. walk through each of these and uh, see what's found in the translation. The first one with footnote J, destructive rumination. Now it's usually evil ideas or evil intentions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go. Yeah. Well, if you remember, one of my commitments is never to use the word evil. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, so, no, we don't use that word. Oh, that's yeah. No, not, not that one either. Unless <laughs> other, other, except very specific circumstances uh, that complimenting we you okay yeah, well no i mean it, it comes in the translation but not yet we haven't gotten okay. there yet okay so um, e- evil ideas and intentions destructive rumination so the words have to you know it's it's that bad word that not a bad word just a bad the word bad it's often translated that way but it's not just like my whole problem with that, that translation in every context is like, if you look at a lexicon, there's like a whole long list of options. If you look at the, the dictionary, the Greek English dictionary is just like a whole long list of uh-huh. like unhealthy or diseased or, but then you put it, you get, look at these translations and they just, every time that Greek word shows up, they just say bad. That's just bad writing, honestly. <laughs> Um, yes, but really what it is, I, we, I think we've referred to it before as closed off language, um, essentially uh-huh. judgmental. If you're, if your whole point is to delineate good, bad, right, wrong, black, white, like you have closed yourself off to a whole world of meaning and a whole world of accessing experiences and wisdom, um, because, uh-huh you instantly refuse any connection, any learning, any contact with whatever you decided gets the word bad attached to it. And that's not necessarily what's supposed to be happening here. So the Greek has a bit more leeway with it than that. Yeah. I think it, it, you know, English has something like, four million vocabulary words uh maybe that number is even outdated i it's it's a lot it's more than i think any other language in history oh yeah no we're just like a backlog of words that we've appropriated or imperially yeah or gen- sure. or healthily integrated yeah it's however you want to want to look at the history of how we got them yes um one way yeah. or another we've got a lot of words which means we have a lot of flexibility in how to express things. Ancient languages, not so much. You look at ancient Hebrew for the Hebrew Bible, and there are only something like 600 words total for the entire Hebrew Bible. Wow. Yeah, they they vary like various forms of those words, but essentially that's it. Um, The Greek vocabulary for the, the... the Greek Testament, the New Testament, traditionally it's called something like 1300 words, period, compared to English's 4 million or whatever it is. I don't actually know, but yeah, something like something in the millions, at least a bajillion. Yeah. 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 
So it seems appropriate to look at the context and to go, okay, so there's something on the negative end of things that this, this word is expressing. Mm-hmm. What does the context tell me about what English word out of my many options would best express how this is negative? It seems like destructive works here. That, that's what I've chosen it for. And so it's an ideas, intentions, it's uh, the entry, that, uh, at least of what I'm looking at right, at right now, out of the one of the resources that I use is the thinking of a man deliberating with himself or a person, <laughs> I, would, I would correct. I like um, a thought, inward reasoning, purpose, design, a deliberating, questioning about what is true, hesitation, doubting, disputing, arguing. Um, so now you're getting a little bit of a taste of what I have to deal with of like, which one of these do I choose or what related idea do I choose? Um, so it's more than just thoughts. It's not just something that occurs to someone in in that particular moment. It's not even just ideas. It is the sense of like kind of wrestling with something kind of like thinking about it and thinking about it, like arguing with yourself. Uh, So that's why I chose rumination, which has that sense of kind of going in circles, like kind of getting stuck Uh in a particular line of thinking in a way that kind of is a spiral that, that kind of catches you and you can't break free. Um, And here it's clearly it's paneros, that word that is hardship or evil or oppressive, diseased unhealthy Um, yeah 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 it's like this 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 pattern of thinking where you're stuck in these thoughts and you can't break free and you're stuck and it's harmful to you and it's maybe harmful to other people this is destructive rumination Uh, not just evil intentions yeah yeah i don't know the evil intentions is powerful enough of a phrase yeah like there's a consciously malign viciousness or cruelty or aggression to evil ideas mm-hmm. like i'm plotting being a prick to somebody mm-hmm. and destructive rumination i mean one i thought only cows ruminate no those are ruminants never mind um, <laughs> okay it's that's like, completely what? different um uh, destructive rumination has this like, well, yeah, we all do that. Like, I absolutely get stuck on just hmm, mean, bitter, vicious, resentful. It's so easy for my heart to get stuck in these cycles of, well, you know, Father Richard Rohr says it quite well and so often that neurologically, what is it? It takes like a fraction of a second of thinking negative thoughts or meanness or whatever, the destructiveness. Uh, and it's like, it's Velcro to our brains. Neurologically, uh, that sort of aggressive destructive is, is Velcro, but benevolent, beatific, sacred, um, shalomi, thinking is much more he calls it like teflon 
it just slips right off our brain. It's really hard to rewire our brain towards good because it takes more like 20 seconds of sustained benevolent intention. Right. And so Um, attention to gratitude specifically. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that really anybody who I feel holier than thou about, it is so cursing hard to hold gratitude but when i do it like it melts something yeah sometimes i get more pissed and then i get less pissed but (laughs) yeah but i I think now we're getting into my other nerd nerd tastic favorite topic is like brain science um i know i'm teeing you up here sorry yeah yeah there's i mean you're welcome (laughs) yeah thank you and gosh dang it uh Matthew 7 and Matthew 25. Yeah. I translated something both as uh, as short-sighted and having foresight mm-hmm. that are contrasted in those two passages. And I, and I think it corresponds to this sense of immediate gratification, instant gratification, self that we talked about. In yeah. the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, um, it's the sense of the part of our brain, the amygdala, the limbic system, that's all about survival right now. And sometimes we're not very good at discerning what's actually about survival. We just, like, that part of our brain gets activated and we think, this is really important if I don't get what I want right now that's a threat to my survival and anybody who tries to get in my way is a threat and deserves whatever they get from me. Um, And that's not accurate, but our brain is interpreting it that way. And it's really hard to shake that, Um, that piece of our mind that you're talking about that, that is activated by that sustained attention to gratitude is much more big picture, long-term kind of thinking that has much more to do with our prefrontal cortex, our anterior cingulate cortex, those much more developed both evolutionarily and age-wise, like amygdala is formed fully at birth, prefrontal cortex is not fully formed until about age 25. Um, That foresight that long-term big picture thinking where i can hold my values and make decisions based on those values instead of based on like i don't feel good and i need to feel good or else i feel like i'm dying (laughs) right now those two parts of our brains are intention and i think that's kind of what we're talking about so the next one in this list is going from a sort of interior introspective kind of language to I mean, really, the thing you're emphasizing is much more social. True. Usually it's um, the word is pornea, and it's often translated, I think almost entirely translated as sexual immorality, which really is just whatever is considered sexually immoral by that culture. At that time. Yeah. It's like that's it's such a really broad, but holy also holy shit, it sucks. It's so, so broad that it's. Anything you're creeped you can apply out by, it however you want it to be applied. Yeah, like yeah, whatever you feel like is unclean, 
which is to say whatever you have a disgust reaction to, you can just shoehorn it in there. Like any kind of sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. Oral sex sounds creepy and weird and gross and unnatural. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. And on and down the list it goes. Mm. Uh, But you're going with sexual exploitation. That's very economic. I it, it, there is yes uh, interesting the the word is related to the verb for to sell. Yeah, you have that in the footnotes. Yeah, yeah. So maybe even reading we don't normally read the footnote, but maybe let's read the footnote here. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is traditionally sexual immorality, and I was about to say this anyway. Admittedly, exploitation might be too narrow. Um, it might be narrower than what the word is actually fully getting at here, but it's certainly not as loosey goosey as it's normally applied. Um, But it might be too narrow of a translation here, which is part of the benefit of using your morality is that it's broad. Yeah. It's vague. And unfortunately, like you were saying, it's been abused and weaponized to be able to include anything you want, anything related to sex that makes people uncomfortable yeah, specifically with, that makes the translators kind of uncomfortable translators the preachers preachers um busy bodies small group leaders yeah uh-huh yeah anybody that doesn't like what someone understand. else is doing that's related to sex they can just say pornea sexual morality you're doing a bad thing stop it and i have mm. the god behind me i have the god I have the definite article. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was more of a slip of the tongue than anything, but yes. Uh, <laughs> hey, Manhattan. Yes, I suppose so. Um, so there is a case to be made that in the mind of a first century Jew, it would point to the sexual instruction contained in Leviticus 17 through 20, which gets back to what we were saying at the beginning of the chapter with Herod and not possessing, having sex with, your sister-in-law, your brother's wife. Um, that's from this section. And the part of the reason people like have made that connection is that in Acts 15, there's this whole debate about can people who are not Jewish, other ethnicities, be Christians, be part of the church. And a lot of people are like, nope, you have to be Jewish because you have to follow God's rules you have to follow torah you have to follow the hebrew bible which yeah i mean that logic is not terrible uh jesus certainly does that jesus emphasizes that but it seems like they're getting in the direction of a lot of what we still see today of like belonging is based on rule following mm-hmm. and they're missing the larger picture of what torah was about um so kind of how the argument ended in acts 15 was that the people who said no people of other ethnicities can be part of the church and they don't have to convert to judaism to do so however there are these four rules that we still want them to follow so somehow rule keeping may still made it in yeah Uh, three of them are about what you eat which at least american christians do not pay attention to kosher laws about not eating the meat with the blood still in it, which every American who's not eating kosher meat eats the meat with the blood still in it. So there's only one that's not about food and it's not engaging in 
porneia. And the reason I think this is a reference to Leviticus 17 through 20 is because those four rules kind of end up summarizing mm-hmm. the longer list of, of rules of be- acceptable and unacceptable behaviors uh, in those chapters, which include things like don't in- ha- do incest, don't have sex with animals, the very contentious ones about a man uh, having sex with another man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the more uh, Victorian translations do a man should not lay with a man like one lays with a woman, but the Hebrew is very explicit. It's like a man should not put his penis inside another man. Like he puts his penis inside a woman. Really? Uh huh. Oh, I always thought that was some sort of like Hebrew idiom. Nope. That is Victorian <laughs> English. Oi. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So exploitation. So, so, so anyway, but one of the things that you, if you look at the list of those sexual guidelines, so sexual yeah. rules, those sexual directions, however you want to phrase it in Leviticus, it's a lot of them have, there are like things that in our culture, we would say are pretty inappropriate a lot of times, like having sex with family members' spouses. Yeah. Um, Friends upon anyway. Yeah, it's, these things, they harm people with the larger discussion about the one we just talked about with a man and a man, which we are, it is outside the scope of what we're talking about right now to like really hammer that out. But anyway, Pornea uh, is what's I'm translating sexual exploitation. Pornea is the same root that's mm-hmm. about to sell. Pornea is the word for a female sex worker. So, like, a female sex worker is linguistically at the intersection of sale. Mm-hmm. She, they, they, they're, the word for it's, them in Greek is basically a pun in both directions between uh-huh. sale Se- and sex. sex for sale. Yeah. Whoa. And then the, the, I don't remember off the top of my head what it is. And I don't have a, a footnote here, but there's a, a masculine word that's related, but it's not sex worker. It's essentially like pimp it's, or John. It's, it's the person using the female sex worker. <clears throat> so Sexual exploitation might not quite cover every single thing that Pornea is talking about, but I think it catches most of it. Without letting in our own subjectivities. Right. And I think when people insist on having a much longer list of very specific consensual behaviors, Mm -hmm. um, they're not actually being faithful to the text they're just letting their own disgust responses or their own cultural expectations color how they're reading it. All right. So we've got two more on this list. Let's briskly hit these. Uh, yeah. Usually it's false testimony. You have lying about another person. Mm-hmm. What's helpful for folks to know? Yeah. Mostly like false testimony isn't just lying period, which I see like, children's kind of paraphrases about the 10 commandments and like instead of don't commit 
false testimony against your neighbor. It's just don't lie. I'm like, sure, probably most of the time that's actually a pretty good rule, but there is more at stake there than just saying an untruth. It's specifically harming another person. You're actually, it's specifically within the context of accusing someone in court, trying to get someone in trouble, saying, saying someone committed a crime, saying someone deviated uh, and deserves to be, to have the consequences of that behavior falsely you're framing someone yes um so it's lying about another person it's causing harm to another person because of you lying not just don't lie that's helpful all right uh footnote m yeah usually it's slander you've got contemptuous speech yeah and it's the greek word for blasphemy that is a super interesting Mm -hmm. um but most people say slander here instead of blasphemy because it's they're not assuming it's about God. Apparently blasphemy can only be about God, even though it's the same Greek word, blasphemia. I think I actually translated this as slander first. And it wasn't until later uh, during Jesus' trial with the, in front of the Sanhedrin that I came back and changed it because I there seems to be a sense in which it's not about saying incorrect bad things about someone. It, it could, it's more about speaking disrespectfully, contemptuously, in a way that minimizes, belittles whoever you're speaking about. And it could be falsely, it could be slanderously. Um, but that's not a requisite. But it doesn't have to be technically false. And it doesn't have to be about God. It's not necessarily no. blasphemia in that sense. All right. Well, thank you. I'm glad we got through that list and to see these different, hopefully more helpful and healthy and liberating ways of understanding this list of things that Jesus is like, yeah, this stuff is all really what constitutes uncleanliness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's, can I just say it's hard to translate a list? There's no context. I go through a story like Jesus and the disciples on the sea and Jesus walking on water. There's, there's a, there's things happening. There's a whole story to help me understand like what one word or one phrase might mean. There's no context here. It's just like six really loaded words Hmm. in a row Mm -hmm. with nothing to help. Mm-hmm. Like, oh gosh, it's a lot of work. All right. We've got one final thing. It's actually a combo that we set up earlier. So, chapter 14, verse 19, getting back in. Mm-hmm. So, there are these, each 14 and 15 both have kind of near the center, the center points of this gospel, this story, extended story about Jesus' life. Both of these have a telling of a story of a miraculous multiplying of scarce food into abundance to feed a few thousand folks. Mm -hmm. And in the first one, it, you know, in both cases, they go through this list of like, he took it 
he broke it. He said a thing. He passed it out. But the, mm-hmm. the, the said a thing part is often translated identically between the two. But you you pointed this out, and it's hard to capture in the footnotes between the two. So it's good to surface this now, the way that they're, these two stories have a, a, a contrastive parallel at this one specific Greek word. Mm-hmm. In the first one, he's not giving thanks for the bread. That would be the Greek, what, Eucharisteo? Yep, Eucharisteo. It's actually, that, that's in the second one, but the first one is something else. Yeah. Yeah, the one in f- chapter 14, verse 19, is not gave thanks, as the New English translation and others translate it. It's eulogeo, which is often translated as blessed. It's literally just like speak well over, um, speak praise. So that's that's how I translate it, spoke praise. And it's not that big of a difference as far as the actual like impact if you're taking this passage in isolation. Like whatever, gave thanks, spoke praise. It kind of doesn't make that big of a difference, right? But hmm. mm-hmm. if you're looking at chapter 15, where is that? It's in verse uh, 36, and it's almost the same sentence, right? It is, what is it? So, and he held the seven loaves of bread and the small fish. So different number of loaves and bread, but more or less the same sentence. He held the seven loaves of bread and the small fish. He gave thanks as opposed to spoke praise. Uh, and he broke them up and gave it to his students. They passed it out. And, you know, a little bit of scarce food for not nearly enough for the people suddenly became way more than was needed. For, yeah. for, the, for the many thousands of people. Yeah. Uh, which just kind of just seems at first like, oh, that's interesting. It uses slightly different words in chapter 14 than it does in chapter 15. But I actually didn't notice that. My first pass, the reason I came back to look at it and decided it was significant was when I was translating chapter 26. <laughs> okay. Um which if you can think ahead and imagine another time where Jesus breaks bread, gives thanks, passes out bread to, to the people around him, pours some wine, speaks praise. I might, mm-hmm. I might have him flipped. Um, passes mm-hmm. it around to the people around him. And in that passage, it uses both. First, it uses the one and then the other in the same order that they're here. So spoke praise, gave thanks. And then it talks about him doing it for the release of deviations for many. How many people did he feed here in chapters 14 and 16, 14 and 15? A lot of people, way more than he should have been able to. That means the expectations. There's something really significant that Matthew and Jesus are doing on purpose by using the different phrases, the different words uh, in 14 and 15, and then referencing that in 26. And using both in the um, institution of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's my personal 
discovery opinion, however you want to phrase it, that this like second half of 14 through 16 is like the central passage of Matthew that everything else revolves around and hinges. You Mm. You have your first half, then you have these like two and a half chapters as the middle, and then you have your second half. Um, and I think that's on purpose that these two stories are both happening here. And all of that's because I was slowing down and looking at the stuff as closely as I was and noticing like, hey, these are not the same in English, same in Greek, even though a lot of people translate them the same in English. So is your, like, I'm shooting from the hip here. Like my hunch would be, okay, does that mean that uh, sort of everything preceding the first feeding is more reflective of praise or something like that. And then the second half is more of like gratitude. So therefore like what, what, no, what the hell does the any of this is, mean? I don't think the first and second <laughs> halves have to do with the, those two words specifically. Um, but I do think it has to do with the kind of the direction uh, so if you notice at the beginning of chapter of, of the first half in chapter three, you have John the Baptist, you have Herod and then Job the Baptist chapters two and three uh, and chapter beginning of chapter 14 here, you have Herod killing John the Baptist. Um, it's kind of like the beginning of the end in a way. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus in chapter four takes on the mantle of of John with the exact same phrase in the Greek and the English uh, transform your minds for the king. The divine reign is almost here. Um, And then you have here, Jesus taking John's role after John is dead in 17, I think is kind of where that actually shows up, but we'll get there. I think the enunciation of these two feedings of thousands of people the 5,000 was in a Jewish region. The 4,000 was in a non-Jewish region. There it is. It's being expanded. Like the assumption by the religious leaders of the day is this is for our people only. It's scarce. We have to hoard it. The good news, the abundance of Yahweh, the divine reign, it's just for us. There's not enough to share. Expand that to the other nations the way Jesus is doing. It's abundance. There is more than enough. And all we have to do is share it. And that creates the abundance. Participation is part of abundance, Mm -hmm. which is another word for justice. Shalom. Making sure everyone has what they need that can be good for everyone. And if God is becoming king, God is reigning in a particular way in and through and with us, then of course participation in the abundant provision of the divine is an expression of divine reign and reigning through us, which is cause for gratitude. The small sum of fishes and bread given to that was sufficient for one tribe of humanity has become indeed miraculously a nourishment for all of humanity. Mm -hmm. Seems like a good point to wrap this one up. We are both thankful and praise your company for this leg of the journey. Uh, The easiest way to support found in translation is to leave us a rating 
or a review in your podcast player of choice. It's helpful if you're on uh, Apple Podcasts. It's helpful if you're in Spotify. It's helpful if you're in whatever you are. That helps more people find the show and find it worth listening to. Second best way, become a sponsor. Part of the community. You can do that for just five bucks a month. You can give more than that. That's totally cool. You can also do it for just five bucks. And when you do that, you get comment access on the translations Google Doc, where you can be engaging with other listeners uh, and parts of the community. You also get the satisfaction that you are supporting exceptionally nerdy independent media. You can find the link to join the community in the show notes. The music you're listening to is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Found in Translation was produced by Perry FM on Chinook land. Goodbye, Brandon. Goodbye, Brandon. Bye, everybody. <laughs>